0: Welcome to the Family Planning Files, a podcast from the National Clinical Training Center for Family Planning. The National Clinical Training Center for Family Planning is one of the training centers funded through the Office of Population Affairs to provide programming to enhance the knowledge of Title X and other family planning staff. I'm your host, Katherine Acheson. In today's podcast, we'll be discussing the new CDC treatment recommendations for gonorrhea infections as presented in an MMWR from December 17, 2020. Our guest today is Hilary Reno, MD, PhD. Dr. Reno is board certified in both internal medicine and infectious disease. She's associate professor of medicine at Washington University in St. Louis and medical director of the St. Louis County Sexual Health Clinic and a medical consultant with the CDC's Division of STD Prevention. Outside of her teaching and clinical work, she also conducts research around improving care delivery for patients with sexually transmitted infections. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Reno. We're so excited to have you here today. Thank you so much. So, just to start for our listeners, would you give us an idea of what gonorrhea infection rates look like in the US today? Yes, we have been
1: very challenged with increasing STI rates in the past few years. And unfortunately, because of the pandemic, we're a little behind in getting our 2019 surveillance data. We expect it'll be out soon, but we can at least look at data that comes up through 2018. And we know in 2018, about 500,080 cases of gonorrhea were diagnosed in the United States. That represented actually a 63% increase since 2014. So a pretty big increase in our gonorrhea cases in the U.S., We know that even with the delayed surveillance reports from 2019, that no doubt that increase is continuing. And as well with the effect of the pandemic, you might expect that perhaps other infections like we've seen with flu would be decreased, but we can't assume that with STIs. And it'll probably be a long time until we figure out the full effect of the pandemic on our STI rates. What we also know we're seeing in case reports is an increased reporting of some of the complications of gonorrhea, like disseminated gonococcal infections are being seen in clusters in different parts of the country. And disseminated gonorrhea needs IV ceftriaxone management. So it's a little more complicated than your kind of -of run-of-the-mill gonorrhea on complicated infections. But as our rates of gonorrhea increase, these types of complications are going to be seen more frequently.
0: And something that's kind of been in the news around STDs for the past few years are issues around antibiotic resistance as well. How big of a problem is antibiotic resistance in gonorrhea and treating gonorrhea in the U.S. at the moment?
1: Right. Well, we have certainly been concerned about resistant bacteria in the United States. And in efforts to form plans around combating antibiotic resistance, leading scientific organizations and our Department of Health and Human Services have looked at this problem. And in doing that, they ranked gonorrhea in the top five of potentially antibiotic resistant bacteria of concern. So that really tells us that resistant gonorrhea is expected to be an issue in the United States. We have not seen the super highly resistant strains of gonorrhea here in the U.S. that have been seen in places like the United Kingdom and Scandinavia or even Japan and other countries in Southeast Asia. We have, however, had gonorrhea that's been resistant to azithromycin. One outbreak that was highly followed and published was in Hawaii. We've also had one instance of a strain of gonorrhea that was resistant to our usual treatment with ceftriaxone that was discovered in Nevada. Luckily, those outbreaks and then that one cephalosporin-resistant gonorrhea strain did not spread further, wasn't found again. So that's the good news. But the bad news is the threat is real and it's here. We are also essentially just left with one class of antibiotics to treat gonorrhea, one class that's approved. And because the best of those types of antibiotics antibiotics is the IM ceftriaxone. That's an injection. So that makes it difficult for some people to get quick and easy access to treatment for gonorrhea because our choices are so
0: limited. So in mentioning that gonorrhea and gonococcal infections are in that top five list of antibiotic-resistant prone infections, is it because Neisseria gonorrhea is particularly prone to developing antibiotic resistance? and, And why? And which antibiotics are no longer considered effective treatments? Those are really good questions. So let's actually take a step back
1: and think about how we know this information. So the CDC sponsors multiple clinics in the United States as part of GISP, which stands for Gynecoccal Isolation Surveillance Project. And so GISP has been in place for many, many years. At these clinical sites spread throughout the country, each month they collect samples of gonorrhea that are tested for antibiotic resistance. So this gives us a really good picture of what gonococcal resistance patterns have looked like year after year after year. And what we know from that is that there's some antibiotics that have been used in the past that really are not helpful now in treating gonorrhea because resistance is so prevalent in our gonorrhea strains. An example of this would be penicillin. So penicillin was one of the first antibiotics used against gonorrhea, pretty much right after it was discovered. And unfortunately, we saw that gonorrhea developed resistance to penicillin. Nowadays, at least from the 2018 GISP data, we know only about 48% of gonorrhea strains have susceptibility to penicillin. So you might think, oh, 48%, that's an awful lot. And it is. If we knew when we were seeing a patient, if their gonorrhea was susceptible, to penicillin or not, but we don't. What we know is that it's worse than a 50-50 shot that you're going to be able to cure someone of their gonorrhea with penicillin. So therefore, it doesn't make a very good treatment. Same sort of situation exists for tetracyclines, which used to be used to treat gonorrhea, and Cipro. So Cipro is one I remember. When I first started practicing as an attending, we were still using Cipro on occasion to treat gonorrhea, but the resistance to Cipro started in cases that were described in Hawaii and in California and eventually spread through the entire United States to the point that cipro resistance had risen to 14% of gonorrhea strains when the CDC recommended that Cipro no longer be used to treat gonorrhea. And in fact, when you look at what we have seen reported from 2019 GISP data, is that 35% of the gonorrhea strains were resistant to Cipro now. So these are some of the antibiotics that are no longer effective and that we don't use to treat gonorrhea, at least not without a test that could tell us the gonorrhea is susceptible to them or some sort of way of looking at that. How is gonorrhea resistant and how does it become resistant to antibiotics? Well, first of all, genetic changes in the bacteria will enable antibiotics to become less able to bind or affect the bacteria, so therefore less likely to kill it. That's the general principles of antimicrobial resistance. Specifically with gonorrhea and with cephalosporins, there is a protein called PbP2 that's used by the antibiotic to bind to the gonorrhea. Once it's bound to the gonorrhea, the antibiotics then prevent that protein from coming together on the gonorrhea surface. And as a result of that, holes form in the gonorrhea and it dies. So that's how the antibiotic uh, cephalosporins kill gonorrhea by binding that protein. So some gonorrhea have proteins that cephalosporins can't bind to. They've evolved them, or maybe they've acquired that genetic material from other bacteria that it's found with, and these gonorrhea are resistant. So that protein that's coded by the bacteria that are resistant can then share the genetic coding with other gonorrhea strains that can then also become resistant to cephalosporins. So that's how gonorrhea is so prone to developing antibiotic resistance is that it has this ability to exchange genetic material amongst itself and even with other bacteria to become resistant to the effects of how antibiotics kill them.
0: Excellent. So that gives us kind of a good picture of what we're looking at today in terms of infection. And now to move on to the treatment recommendations, which were in the MMWR. What are those changes and how will they work to prevent increasing or developing antibiotic resistance incurred infections?
1: Right. So this MMWR report that came out in December was very clear in how the CDC is advising clinicians to treat gonorrhea. And that advice is that the ceftriaxone dose should increase to 500 milligrams IM. For patients over 150 kilograms, that dose should be one gram IM. That can also, by the way, be given IV in case the patient maybe is in an emergency room and already has an IV, you can give the IV form of ceftriaxone at the same dose that you would if I am but that aside, new treatment recommendations also include not treating gonorrhea with azithromycin alongside the ceftriaxone. So this dual therapy that we've been recommending for many years, really since 2010 and then in the 2015 treatment guidelines, means that we won't be administering azithromycin as another way of covering the gonorrhea. This was previously recommended because we knew that cephalosporin-resistant or potentially resistant gonorrhea strains were not the same strains that had resistance to azithromycin. And so by covering the organism with the two antibiotics, you are making sure that this resistant GCs either to cephalosporins or azithromycin wasn't emerging. Unfortunately, what we are seeing now is increasing resistance to azithromycin and gonorrhea. Through the GIST project, we know that resistance to azithromycin has been increasing for the past five years and that we are now at almost 5% of gonorrhea strains being resistant to azithromycin. And again, we may think, okay, this time 5%, that doesn't seem like a lot. However, we have seen this happen time and time again with antibiotic class after antibiotic class, and we know as resistance to an antibiotic increases and starts on the swing and maintains that, that it's inevitable, that so much of the gonorrhea strains that infect people will become resistant to azithromycin, that it won't be abused. So that's one reason the azithromycin double coverage is dropped. The other reason it's dropped in these latest recommendations is for consumers concerns about antimicrobial stewardship. Remember, we talked about how there are many other different concerning organisms when it came to antibiotic resistance, including multi-drug resistant gram negatives that can cause severe sepsis and death. And also, interestingly, strep pneumoniae is one example, as well as Shigella, a GI bug. These are organisms that cause infections. A strep pneumo can cause really severe pneumonia in people, even when it's pan-susceptible. But we're seeing increased increased azithromycin resistance in these organisms. And so if there's not much use to adding azithromycin to gonorrhea treatment, we should be smart about how we apply our antibiotics and really be good stewards. That's what we call antimicrobial stewardship. And that means the double covering of GC is not giving us an advantage in treating gonorrhea, and we don't want it to contribute to increased azithromycin resistance in other bacteria that cause disease. So that's the major reasoning behind us moving just to ceftriaxone to treat gonorrhea. The reason for the increased dose is that we're very concerned that gonorrhea, especially in the pharyngeal site, is treated and cured. And we know that that's achieved once you get over the minimum inhibitory concentration, (MIC). that's the level of antibiotic in the tissue that can kill the bacteria, and you stay over that level for a period of time. We know with, with gonorrhea, we need to stay above of that MIC level for 20 to 24 hours. Based on some modeling studies, that is better achieved with 500 milligrams of ceftriaxone as opposed to 250 milligrams of ceftriaxone. So the goal there is to make sure that we're killing off the gonorrhea so that any organisms that could be even minimally resistant are dying off and not able to replicate or share their advantage, right? So that's the goal and that's what we're talking about when we talk about preventing increased antibiotic resistance.
0: And that leads us really well into our next question. Obviously, we have listeners from all sorts of clinical sites. They all have their own protocols, but many of them are starting to implement procedures like extra genital testing, tests of cure, or treating contacts without first testing. How do these changes affect these procedures, and what do the recommendations mean in these cases? So let's
1: approach this and first talk about extra genital sites. And then we'll talk about the test to cure that the MMWR report mentions. And then we'll talk about expedited partner therapy. So with these recommendations, these changes in treatment to ceftriaxone 500 milligrams IM for uncomplicated gonorrhea is the same, whether that site of infection is the urethra, the endocervix from a vaginal swab at the pharyngeal site or the rectal site. So So that uncomplicated gonorrhea treatment is the same at all sites. We know we need to do extragenital testing because in certain populations, if we don't, we miss up to 80% of STIs, especially in cisgender men who have sex with cisgender men and in transgender persons. Extragenital testing is essential. There is some indication that in certain cisgender men who have sex with cisgender women and in cisgender women who have sex with cisgender men, that occasionally extragenital testing is warranted. Always if someone has symptoms, sore throat, pain with bowel movements or discharge, from the rectum, they should get an extragenital test. Recommendations on screening at extragenital sites for what can be termed heterosexual patients do not exist. We don't recommend general screening there. But nevertheless, sometimes patients receive extragenital testing. And for those patients as well, this is the standard therapy for this uncomplicated gonorrhea. So the other issue when it comes to this MMWR report and mention of extra genital sites is this concept of a test of cure at the pharyngeal site. So there's a difference between test of cure and retesting. Retesting of patients with STIs three months after they have been diagnosed with an STI is recommended across the board for everyone who has had an STI. Why is that? Because we know they're at increased risk of another STI in the 12 months after their initial infection. There's lots of evidence showing that. So that's called a retest. We're retesting not because we're concerned about treatment failure, but we're concerned about someone being reinfected because STIs exist in their sexual network and they have an increased risk of reinfection. Test of cure refers to retesting a patient who had a positive test in STI, retesting them at that same site in a shorter time period to make sure that they didn't have treatment failure. We do test a cure in pregnant women who have gonorrhea or chlamydia, largely because we're concerned about reinfection and the impact that can have on a pregnancy. But for the MMWR recommendations that include a test of cure for anyone with pharyngeal gonorrhea at 7 to 14 days, this is being recommended to determine if there has been treatment failure because we know that there are potentially problems with how ceftriaxone penetrates the pharyngeal tissue and its ability to completely treat the gonorrhea. When we look at the evidence for test of cure, there's a few issues. One is that it's hard to get patients to come back. So understand that doing a test of cure for anyone, you might lose people and getting them to come back. There was one study in LA that looked at a large cohort of cisgender men who had pharyngeal gonorrhea and found only about 26% of them were able to come back for that test of cure for their pharyngeal gonorrhea. So this may be a low yield effort, first of all. Second of all, the recommendation for that test of cure is in a window of seven to 14 days after treatment, there's some evidence that indicates because these nucleic acid amplification tests are so, so sensitive that they actually pick up genetic material from dead organisms. So they could be positive, but there's actually no transmission that can happen. So this is a form of a false positive. We know that unfortunately this can happen. And probably when you look at about 13 days in one study that I reviewed, about 90 5% of people with pharyngeal gonorrhea would be negative at that time point. Um, Actually, let me clarify, that was uh, urogenital gonorrhea, not pharyngeal gonorrhea. There's very few studies that have looked at um, how long dead genetic material from gonorrhea persists in the pharynx. Should you do a test of cure at seven days for someone with pharyngeal gonorrhea, and it comes back positive, you don't know if that is from leftover genetic material or actual infection. And so what we would probably recommend, at that point is to encourage them to have no sexual contact and to come back at 14 days where you would do another gonorrhea test with a NAT test but also if you have available send a culture as well because that'll tell you if there's live organism and if there's any concerns about antimicrobial resistance. The other approach to this is if you're going to recommend a test cure for pharyngeal gonorrhea, do it at 14 days. That's still within the MMWR report recommendations just at the end of their 7 to 14 day window when we know that most people will have cleared that genetic material from the dead organisms. So we've talked about extragenital site treatment and we've talked about the test to cure for pharyngeal GC. So let's talk about the impact of this report on expedited partner therapy. When it comes to gonorrhea expedited partner therapy, we enter a little complicated of an area. So the dose of cefixime that used to be recommended as an alternative therapy for gonorrhea was 400 milligrams, but like the ceftriaxone dose, it needed to increase to ensure that we stay above that MIC long enough. So cefixime now is recommended at 800 milligrams one-time dose for gonorrhea treatment. Again, an alternative therapy. Because of the difficulty of getting oral cephalosporins into the pharyngeal tissue and killing gonorrhea, it is recommended as an alternative only if IM ceftriaxone is not available and really available. Not just you're pretending it's not available and you want to give someone a pill. No, it is really not available. So I'll come back to an example when I used suffixing to treat a patient with gonorrhea recently, but let's go stick with the EPT for now. So if you're in a program where they're providing expedited partner therapy for gonorrhea and for patients with gonorrhea, many people have been using suffixing 400 milligrams. That needs to go up to suffixing 800 milligrams. And then we also need to understand that it's an alternative therapy, not the recommended therapy, that there's going to be some challenges and issues there. And some programs don't provide expedited a partner therapy for gonorrhea. And I think that that's also a decision that they've made and weighed the risks and balances, and we need to respect that. So back to an example of where I used suffixine. We had a patient who was diagnosed with gonorrhea, symptomatic and uncomfortable very late on a Friday afternoon of a long holiday weekend. They were uncomfortable, we could not get them to a clinic where they could get IM ceftriaxone. And so I advised their treating physician to use cefixime 800 milligrams. So they were able to call that in that night. The patient could take it that night and then get through their holiday weekend, hopefully with their symptoms improving. And then I encouraged that clinician to have the patient come back at two weeks for a test or cure. That I think is a perfectly appropriate use of cefixime. And that was an instance with when IM ceftriaxone was simply not available to that patient for three and a half days. And I thought that would be difficult and uncomfortable for the patient to endure for that long.
0: And another sort of issue that often comes up with patients is those documented allergies or adverse reactions to any medication. But with gonorrhea only responding to these one class of antibiotics anymore, what can be done for those patients who have that documented allergy or adverse reaction to ceftriaxone?
1: Yeah, we're still in a bit of a difficult place with that, and so the MMWR report details that the the goal when someone notes that they're allergic to either penicillin or cephalosporins is to assess that allergy, make sure it is a true, real allergy, and not something that has been handed down in the family. For example, I have heard people, when asked about their allergy, describe being a child having had an allergic reaction to penicillin where they just threw up a couple of times. I've also had people who've. noted that, well, their grandparent was allergic to penicillin. So no one in the family takes penicillin and or cephalosporins. So those are not true allergies. And that those patients warrant being treated with a cephalosporin and with ceftriaxone. For patients that have a true allergy to penicillin or cephalosporins, in which it is not appropriate to give them ceftriaxone, they are best managed by a somewhat difficult regimen. And that is gentamicin, 240 milligrams IM, and two grams of azithromycin. Myosin is a one-time dose. Why is it a difficult regimen? Well, the risk of side effects like nausea and vomiting, GI side effects is pretty high. 20% of patients will have that sort of side effect from that drug combination. We also know that it's not super effective at extragenital sites. There was one study I was able to review that showed only about an 80% success rate at the pharyngeal site and about 85% success rate at the rectal site. So those patients that are treated with this alternative regimen also would warn and a test to cure at 14 days. And, you know, the good news is there's some other medications in the pipeline. There's at least five other meds that are being explored, some in earlier phase studies, some have gone through phase three studies, and hopefully one or two of those will be approved for treatment for gonorrhea in the near future so that we have an alternative for these patients with allergies.
0: Well, this has been a very informative conversation, but unfortunately, our time is running a bit short at the moment. But before we go, while our clinicians are still waiting for the new CDC treatment guidelines to come out, where would you advise that they would go for more information or guidance if they have questions or concerns about treating gonorrhea infections?
1: Right. So they can certainly read the MMWR report, which is available on the CDC MMWR website. And they have a box that summarizes the treatment recommendations, which is nice. You don't have to read the whole thing. You can just look at the boxed information. The full treatment guidelines we expect, perhaps in May, we're hopeful, should be out then. But there's also other groups that can help, including your local STI-HIV prevention training centers, which we have a website, stdccn.org. That's the clinical consult network. So if you go there, enter your question, then someone from your local prevention training center will be able to contact you and help you work through your clinical issues. So that's what I would recommend. And we're always available at the CDC, too. They have a CDC consult line as well. If you really find yourself up a creek without a paddle and don't know what to do, we're happy to help you with consults.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Reno, and for sharing your time and expertise. For more content, including previous episodes of the Family Planning Files, search for the Family Planning Files podcast or subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For a transcript of this episode, as well as other online learning activities and continuing education opportunities, please visit our website at www.ctcfp.org. You can also follow the National Clinical Training Center for Family Planning social media on Twitter at nctcfp, all lowercase, and sign up for a monthly newsletter, Clinical Connections, on our website. This training is supported by DHHS Grant number 5, FPTPA 006029-03-00. The contents of this podcast solely represent the views of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official positions of the Department of Health and Human Services, or DHHS, Office of the Assistant Secretary of Health, or OASH, or the Office of Population Affairs, or OPA no official support or endorsement of DHHS, OASH, and or OPA for the opinions described in this podcast is intended or should be inferred. Theme music written by Dan Jones and performed by Dan Jones and the Squids. Other production support provided by the Collaborative to Advance Health Services at the University of Missouri-Kansas City School of Nursing and Health Studies. And finally, thank you to our listeners for tuning in today. We hope that you'll join us next time for another episode of the Family Planning Files.